The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, such an amazing, amazing picture of who you are in your word. And automatically, I feel totally incompetent to to illustrate this or to teach this. So I ask for your help. Help me. Help us all, Lord. We've got your word right here on our laps, in front of our eyeballs. Help us to see. Help us to taste. Help us to get who you are and your knowledge of us. Write it on our hearts, Lord. Affect us, I pray, by the Holy Spirit. And let it be transformative for your glory according to your purposes. Lord, we thank you. For this truth, we thank you that we can study it, think about it together. We ask your blessing on our time now. In Jesus' name, amen. There's something that you might be slow to realize about yourself, maybe even slower to admit, but I think you'll agree with me as we think about it that it's real in you. And believe me, before we get there, I want you to know I'm not judging you because I have it as well. And here's what I'm thinking of. If you think I'm wrong, talk to me after the service. You have an inner ache to be significant. You really want to be significant. You want to be worthy of attention. You want to be known and appreciated. You want to be seen as valuable don't you? Now think of the many ways this is expressed in your life. We want to be smart or we want to be intelligent or we want to be beautiful or powerful or we want to be seen as a good parent or a good teacher or a good leader. We want to be seen and noticed at work or by the opposite sex or by our spouse or by our kids or we just wished we'd been significant in the eyes of our parents but we want it so badly in so many ways. So not only do you want to be significant, so do I, sometimes you doubt that you are. And man, if people ever get in the way of your view of your own significance, it's when things get raw. It's when things get ugly. So hard question, honest question. Are you actually significant? Am I actually significant? Well, my first answer to that is we're both less significant and more significant than we actually think. Here's how we're less, okay? Let me share a little with you. When I was younger, I used to have this fantasy dream that life was a movie about me. Go ahead and laugh. Did you ever see Karate Kid, right? I just resonated with that. Not because I'm good at karate. I'm not. But because his, he felt this angst, he wanted to be significant, and he moved. I had to move a lot. And so that scene, he's, the music's playing as he moved. And so I would imagine, you know, that, and this is what every youth wants, right? We want the 80s ballad soundtrack playing while we're sad. It almost makes being sad worth it. It's about me, this movie, right? Now, now you laugh because you all know the movie's not about me. You all know what? It's about you. <laughs> Oh my gosh, what if the movie's not about any of us? What if it's not about us? You know, if I died tonight, some of you would be sad for a while. And you'd move on in a couple months. Some of you we've never met, you'd be like, oh, that was sad, and you'd move on in 30 minutes. Some of you, it would hurt longer. Thank you. (laughs) But you'd move on. You would. And a couple of you, a couple of you, it hurts you for life. But you'd figure it out. I would be forgotten. The world never knew me. My little congregation would move on in a couple months. Some people would be hurt for years. In a generation, I'm dust. I'm dust. We're less significant than we think. We're less significant than we think. But before we become totally discouraged, (laughs) there's also a way that we're far more significant than we think. 
far more significant than we think. Well, how could that be? Well, this is what I think. There's only one who can make us significant, ultimately. And it's the reality of the only one who is truly significant. It's God himself. Only God can make things significant. Listen, if there's no God, nothing is significant. We can make fairy tales about it, but you're a glorified mosquito. Um, Yay for you. If there's no God, there's no significance. But if there is a God, think about it, the creator, the sustainer, the judge, the savior, the eternal one, the beginning and the end, he is significant. And he's the one who gives meaning and significance. He gives it. So that means if you're significant, if I'm significant, our significance is determined by him. It's determined by him. So this leads to some amazing, horrible, awesome questions. Things that we maybe know in our brains, answers to, but I don't know if we feel them right in our heart. Does God know about you? How does your heart answer that? You're probably like, well, of course, he knows everything. Yeah, but does he, does he care? Really, about you? It's easy for us as Christians to be like, he loves the world. Okay? Does he know and love you? You. Who you are. Is he paying attention to you in your life? You ever feel like God's forgotten you? He's too busy working on the really important things? You wouldn't be significant enough to grab his attention, would you? Would you? What if God sees and knows and he cares more than we could ever dream? If you knew that, would you need anybody else to know or care? (laughs) Not in the same way. If God doesn't care, it doesn't matter. If he does, everything matters. We're in Psalm 139 this morning. A, A psalm is a spiritual song or a poem meant as an invitation to our hearts. They really are invitations Psalms are God saying to his people, when you're happy, when you're sad, when you're angry, when you're broken, when you're hopeful, come to me like this. Bring your heart to me like this. I'm so thankful for the Psalms. We need them. Every hard question I've ever had in the pastor's office, how can there be a God if this? And sometimes he's like that, and I want to be like, I'm so glad to tell you, God already put this in the Bible for us. How long, O Lord, is a biblical question. It's in the Psalms. God, how come you let all the evil people do all these things? Oh, praise God. That's in a Psalm. It's an invitation. Come to me like this. This Psalm is written, like many Psalms, by David. David, if you'll remember, is the iconic king of Israel. In general, especially compared to other kings, he's a man after God's own heart. And so he leads us in worship. It's an invitation. He writes this not just for him. It wasn't just in his journal, and they were like, did you see what's in David's journal? This would be great. No, it's, it's meant for the congregation. It's meant for the crowd. It's meant for us. Come on, let's know God like this. And in this psalm, David is pondering God, heavy thoughts. What would it be like just to pause and ponder what it's like? For God to be God. He's pondering God. And not only is he pondering God, he's pondering God's pondering of him. Did you catch that? He's pondering God. Whoa, what's it like? And now he's pondering God's pondering of him. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And this can, as we're going to see, at least for me, this can be terrifying. It's terrifying. It's also, it can also be delightful. Delightful. But here, I think, is where you find the only significance you've ever truly had and the only significance you will ever ultimately need right here in this passage. The significance that you have, all the significance that you need. We're going to see four realities about God. And we're going to just let the truth of this passage land on a big issue of our culture. Four realities of God some application. So here's the first reality. We're, first reality of God, and, and listen, I'm so bad at describing this, I really, I don't feel like I, I'm up for this task. 
So I'm just going to invite you, I'm just going to try to be a tour guide through the words. Will you just imagine this with me? Let it land on you. Let's ponder what David's pondering for a moment. First, we're going to see verses 1 to 4. God is the all-knowing one. The all-knowing one. Omniscient. Verse 1, David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And I'm, just, I'm going to go ahead and tell you everything David says here about himself is also true for you. You have searched me and known me. Okay, imagine. Imagine God, the investigator, walking through the rooms of who you are, searching, knowing, with his perfect knowledge. Verse 2, he knows your every deed. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. That's a Hebrew way of saying you know everything. When I get up in the morning, when I, when I lie down at night, and everything in between, you know it. He knows how you live your days. He knows where your mind goes when you're driving. He knows what you like to do in your leisure time. He knows all your activities. You discern my thoughts from afar. So distance is no problem. What does he see right into? Your thoughts. Now one of God's graces in life is that we can't see one another's thoughts. Because no one would have any friends. <laughs> I don't want to know everything you've thought about me. <laughs> I don't want you to know what I've thought about you. Can I get an amen? <laughs> All right? We can hide it. Praise the Lord. Hopefully over time we develop these filters that help us think things and go, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> and not say it. Some of us are still missing those. Okay? Let's grow in those filters. There's no filter with God. There's no filter. He sees your thoughts. He sees them very clearly. All your thoughts. He knows what you think about those people. He knows what you think about him. He knows what you think about yourself. He knows what has entertained you, what has bothered you, what confronts you. He knows your thoughts. Verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. That searching out is like sifting or winnowing that you would do with like wheat, God you know, you've got to separate the good from the bad, and so you mix it around. He's done this with you and your life and your thoughts and your motives. Searched out your motives. He's acquainted with what you do and why. And this is really where it blows our minds if we think about it, because how many of your own motives for doing things are you really familiar with? Why do we get counseling sometimes? A part of that is digging up to see influences that have come in our lives and the motives that are embedded in there, these things we're trying to achieve or do or reach again, and we don't even know why we're so loaded in a certain way. These things that attach to us for good or for ill, and they affect us so much, we can't even see them. Sometimes we need help. I don't, Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful. I don't even know my own heart and why I do everything. Sometimes I discover a motive of mine and I'm ashamed. Gosh, am I really that insecure? God knows. He sees your motives, all your ways, why you do what you do. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. I don't always know what I'm going to say. I, I should plan ahead better. God knows what you're going to say before you say it. Not only that, he knows everything you've said. One thing that's frustrating about sermons is you say them and then they kind of disappear. A benefit of that is if you say something stupid, that tends to disappear too. When we say things, we think they disappear. And a lot of it does. But so much, probably more than we think, hits the heart. 
you don't know how much what you say influences me. It really does. It really does. It influences me. It's probably true when I say things about you too. I'm listening. Even if you said something really mean one day or awful, somebody did, and I'd be like, well, that's not true, and I know that's not true, I would still have to spend time processing how it wasn't true. (laughs) And even if I push it off as, no, I don't think that's right, it hit me. None of your words have disappeared with God. Not one. Oh, God, help me. He knows your words your motives, your thoughts, why you do what you do, what you do every day. Perfect knowledge, perfect knowledge. He knows your pains, your insecurities, your shame, your failures, the way you compensate. He knows your dreams, what you love, what makes you tick, what you're worried about. He knows. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows the photosynthesis happening in the leaves and the grass and the beetles climbing around inside of our picnic tables. He does. He knows. He upholds those little things with the word of his power. He knows the deer giving birth in the woods. He knows the stars blazing. Isaiah says he knows them by name. We can't count the galaxies. He knows them by name. He knows And he knows you and your heart and everyone's. Oh, what knowledge. And it's not like a computer knowledge, isn't it? It's not like theology knowledge, omniscience. It's personal, detailed attention to you. Listen, the rest of the world might be bored, but if God's interested in you, you're interesting. And God is very interested. God is very interested in you. Are you significant? Well, the history of the world's not about you. Sorry to kill the movie. But God knows you and He's watching. You're significant. You're significant. He's the all knowing one. He knows us. Second thing about God here, he's the all-present one. Omnipresent, all-present as spirit. He is everywhere all the time in the same way that his knowledge is perfect. His presence fills everything. Look at what David says in verse 5. You hem me in behind and before. Lay your hand upon me. So David's stuck can't get out. And where's he stuck? He's stuck in the presence of God. I have a book on my shelves, and I honestly can't remember when I read it and what it said very much, but the title always gets to me. And it's about how Christians act like practical atheists. Practical atheists. And so it's a funny thing to think about how I'm often aware of God, I'm often praying to God, but there are so many moments when my brain goes godless. I've forgotten he's there, not conscious of him. Also, you know, you read scripture, and many times evildoers will be quoted as saying, God doesn't see, God doesn't hear. And we could put this into practice if we think of those dark moments in front of the computer or things we said, if you'd had a sense of God being there with you, you may have behaved differently. But in that moment, he, was, he wasn't there. But that's not because he wasn't there. You pushed him out of your brain or you forgot him or you ignored him But he was there. He hems us in behind and before. His hands are on us. We can't get out everywhere we go. And that's really what David is going to say. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? That's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? Nowhere. Now I want to bring this up right here. 
how did you feel when you heard about God's perfect knowledge of you? Anybody go, oh. Did anybody go, I want out. I need to run away. I can't handle this. I don't want to be stared at like that. I don't want to be known like that. I got to leave. Maybe that's in here a little bit. You know me so where? I'm, I'm out of here. Where can I go? What's the first thing Adam and Eve do back in that story of the garden when they sin against God, they rebel? What do they do? They hide. Oh, now you're going to see my junk. Let's hide under the bush. The, you know, there's a problem when you play hide and seek with God, right? It's no fun. <laughs> you can't hide. You can't get away. Look at, this is wonderful Hebrew poetry. Look at the extremes David is taking. Verse 8, if I send to heaven, so if I go as high and as transcendent as I can possibly get, what? Well, there you are. Well, let's go low then. Sheol, that word can mean a lot of things. It's the tombs, it's the place of the dead. So I went high, now poetically, where am I going? I'm going low. I'm going deep as I can. Well, God's there too. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, if you're an Israelite, right, the, the sea's over there, you imagine the sunset or the, and the sunrise. And you just, if I go over here into the sunrise, you're there. If I go into the darkness, let me hide in the darkness. Well, verse 12, even the darkness isn't dark to you. Night's as bright as the day. Darkness is as light with you. Where are you going to go to get away from God? Where can you go? There's, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Revelation, the, the vision is God is the alpha and the omega. He's the A and the Z. He's the start and the finish. Historically, timeline, spatially, every way. You can't get out. He's all-knowing. He's all present, and David says, this is too wonderful to me, too amazing to me to consider who God is, these attributes of God. God knows David, and God is with David. He's with you all the time. He's with you. It's not like he leaves you sometimes to take a, na- take a nap, take a break. No, in fact, if you want to get away, you can't. He is so with you. He's all present. Does that give you significance? Everybody else might have left, but if God's there, God's there. You're significant. He's all knowing. He's all present. He's also the all-creating one. Look at verses 13 and following. David says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven. In the depths of the earth. I can't think of a better word than intimate creation. Intimate creation. When you were conceived, no matter what the situation, what the circumstance, when you were conceived, the all-knowing, all-present God was there making you. He wove you together in your mother's womb. Before she even knew she was pregnant, he was there, and this knitted word, it's the same word used of the tabernacle in Exodus where they're making these special linens for God's worship. And you can imagine the, you know, the Weaving it so carefully because these are the holy cloths and it's got to be beautiful and it's got to be perfect. And God was weaving you together just the way he wanted it inside your mother. Look at his attention and his care in your life. 
You are not an accident at all, and not even close. Our stories are different. But when you were conceived, whatever the background on the story was, God was there saying, I'm going to make this just the way I want it. I know this person. I know this person. I'm with this person. I see them. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Your eyes saw me. Intricately woven. God was there. And David didn't even have what we have. I got to see my number five, my little dude. We're having a boy last Wednesday. I got to see his perfect little feet and his little spine and his little hands. And they suck their thumbs. And you can do the super special one where you can see him smile. You can see their faces. You can see the heart. It's always a thrill every time they put that little thing down there. And all of a sudden, whoa, 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 whoa. You're like, oh, already. You're like, I love that kid. God sees it. God made it. God put it together. So beautiful. And because of this, look at verses 16 to 18. Your eyes saw my, unfor- uh, saw my unformed substance. In your, book was writ- in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed to me when as yet there was none of them. He knows you. He's with you. He knitted you. And he's got your story in his hands. Nothing's outside, nothing in your life has ever been outside of God. Nothing. And David said, this is amazing. Verse 17, this is amazing. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. This is precious, David says. This is so important. Listen, clue. David says, this is precious. As a reader, what should we be grabbing onto? To know this about God is precious. Are you, gr- grip this. It's precious to life to know that he knows you so well. It's precious to life to know that you can never escape his presence. It's precious to life to know that he intricately made you. It's overwhelming. Verse 18, David says, if I could count your thoughts to me, you, if I could count your thoughts about me, David said, it's, more, it's like counting sand on the beach. One, two, yeah, okay. That's God's thoughts towards you. And he says, I'm awake and I'm still with you. Scholars have wondered what that means. Uh, here's my favorite interpretation. That is, if you were trying to count the sand or God's thoughts about you, at some point you'd be like, you fall asleep. And then you'd wake up. And even though your brain maybe is moving on to another thought process, well, guess what? That whole time, God was still Thinking of you. You fell asleep. You got distracted. He didn't. When I awake, I'm still with you. Wow. God is all-knowing, all-present, all-creating, which means you're significant because he thinks you're significant. God is also all-holy, now here's where we see David seems to, his train seems to go off the rails. Did you notice in verse 19 to 22? You put me together in my mother's womb, this kind of intimate, private, precious idea. And now David's like, slay the wicked. <laughs> I hate them, right? I hate them. And now our, um, our Jesus sensibilities go off, right? You're like, wait a second. We can't do that. We're not supposed to hate people. What's going on? Well, let's remember who he was and how he had to live. He's a king in a brutal time about 3,000-something years ago. He's also writing poetically. It's interesting he doesn't say, Oh, God, I'm going to go out and slay the wicked for you. What's he doing? Saying, Oh, God, you, you slay the wicked. Bring us justice. And it sounds like a hard prayer, although if you're reading the news... ISIS killed 13 kids the other day for watching soccer. Shot them down. Can we pray this prayer? Oh God, please. Slay the wicked. Right now, Boko Haram in Nigeria is wrecking Christians. Today, they planned a, an invasion on a city. Can we pray this? Oh God, please. Please bring justice. 
Not only that, God, David's a king, and he's got all these influences on him. Read the book of Kings, read Chronicles. They've always got these influences on him, and a lot of these influences are awful. Look at, the, look at how these people are described. God made them too. They, they have significance in his mind, but their words are against God. They speak against God, verse 20. Not only that, they, they hate God, verse 21. They rise up against God, and in verse 19, they are men of blood. So these, these are people dominating, doing injustice, doing evil, because they hate God. And so as David sees and remembers and ponders on God's knowledge of him, this is the way I define it, David says, I'm picking a team, and the team is God's. Now that I realize more of who he is and how he knows me, I want to be pleasing to him. And all these influences that want me to be like these guys, no, not doing that. I hate that stuff. I hate that stuff. Do we love our enemies in Scripture? Of course. Of course. Is there forgiveness? Of course. Is there grace? Of course. And David believes all these things. But this is what he's saying in this poem. God, you know me. I'm separating out of that because you're holy and you love what's good and you hate what's evil. And you've known me and you're with me and you've made me. I want to be holy like you. I want to be on your team. <laughs> Completely. I want to be on your team. Away with that other stuff. God, get rid of that other stuff. That ugly, that awful stuff. By the way, see it right here. How do these evil people feel about God? They hate him. He has no significance. Now, how do they treat others? They're men of what? blood the more you value the significance of God the more you know your own significance and the significance of others the more you demean the value and significance of God the more you demean the value of yourself and the significance of others that's what these people are doing David says I don't want any part of it but he doesn't just stop there He's not just looking, he, he wants his life cleansed, his leadership cleansed. He wants to be pleasing to God. But he doesn't just say, let's deal with the evil out there. What does he say in verse 23? Let's deal with the evil in here. In here. I dare you to pray this seriously in your life. Verse 23, what's he ask God to do? Search me, O God, know my heart. And God's answer is, done. <laughs> Already did it before you prayed. I knew you were going to pray that. <laughs> but not only that, then David says, try me, know my thoughts, see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me. So God, David is saying, you know me, you know my motives, you know why I do things, you know it better than me. Now test me, Test what's good and what else? Show me. Show me what you know about me. What a prayer. God, you know why I'm doing, why I'm loving. Why, you know why, you know how. Show me what I can't see. Do you know you have blind spots? I got blind spots in my life. David's praying, God, show me my blind spots. Show me and lead me in the way, what? Everlasting. God's everlasting holy ways. Show me where I'm off so I can be like you and with you. Teach me. Take me with you. Show me how I can change. Amazing. Help me love what you love. Do what you do. Do you see how precious this is? God knows everything. He knows you. He's interested. You're significant. God is everywhere. He's always with you. You've never been away from him. You're significant. God made you. From your mother's womb, he's been with you every step of the way. He knows your days. You're significant. And God is holy. So what does that mean? If you know who he is and his knowledge of you. Do you want to be like him? I got two more things for us. One is a hard application. Another is a great hope. Okay? Hard application. Great hope. As I said, it's Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's a day where churches around the nation, Ronald Reagan started this as a, 
as a day back in 1984. It's when Christians grieve abortion and stand for the unborn. You know, I've done this every year, I think eight or nine years, and I've always given some stats and arguments and ways to remember about that the fetus is a human and you know, in today's world, scientifically, there's no debate, right? It's a human. It's got DNA written, written all in him, all over him. It's just, I'm not going to do those arguments today. I just want the truth of this passage to land on the issue. I just want the truth of this passage to land on the issue. What's happening when conception happens in a womb, according to this text. God is knitting someone together. And that is a person with infinite significance. And remember, we see the more we deny the significance of God, the less we give significance and value to others. There's a bunch of people who are given no significance and no value when it comes to abortion. Number one, obviously, the unborn. Top three reasons for abortions are they interfere with work, school, and other responsibilities. We can't afford it. We don't want to be a single parent. We've got problems with the partner. I'm not diminishing the pain of each one of those things. Those are hard, hard things, but it strikes me that they're not good enough reasons to kill someone God has made. We wouldn't apply those reasons in any other context without it being called murder. There's a church in Northern California that I kind of follow. One of the pastors' name is Steve Patton, and he'd, he tweeted this the other day, stop me in my tracks, He tweeted this, 12-year-old girl was abused, got pregnant. Everyone would understand if she had an abortion. She didn't. It was a boy. His name, Steve Patton. And then he wrote, I'm not a decision. I'm a life. Hard to argue with that. God made that. God made Steve. And God made a, a life for Steve. God, knit us together in the mother's womb. We need to remember, we need to fight for the idea that the unborn are humans. They have value and significance. Not because of any claim we make about them or not. But because God has made them in his image. But we'd have to go farther than that too, right? Who else isn't valued in this whole circle, in this issue? I don't think young women are valued. I don't think they're valued. According to what I've read and what I've heard, one of the biggest issues in abortion is a lack of perceived support. They feel totally alone. And they just don't know how to cope with it. A lot of times all it takes is somebody, some group to say, I'm here with you, I'll help you. 85% of abortions are from unmarried women. 85%. A husband seems to make quite a difference. And that makes sense, at least in general, doesn't it? There's someone saying, this is mine. We're in it together. We need to value young women. We need to value them and their stories, support them. I'm so proud and so thankful of the ministry that so many of you are part of. Generation Her meets in the back building on Tuesday nights. Proud of those young ladies for keeping their babies, for working hard. Proud of the mentoring that so so many of you do and the the childcare. Showing them that they're valuable. They're significant. They are. They're probably not the only people who need to be shown their significance. The young fellas need significance too, don't they? What are we looking for in our culture with the way we handle sexuality? How are we doing it? 
We're looking for significance somehow, somewhere in there, and we don't know where to find it. We don't know how to put all this together so that it makes sense. We don't know what it means to be a man, to protect somebody, to serve somebody, to be responsible. Too many dudes are abandoned by fathers, don't know any better. Can I tell you just one of my little hobby horse things that makes me angry? You can disagree with me. I still love you. Have you seen those Skin Industries t-shirts? Have you seen those things with the bumper stickers on the trucks? They got these silhouettes of these Barbie-looking babes on the trucks, on the cars. Skin Industries. I saw a dude walking around with his kid in the neighborhood with his Skin Industries t-shirt on. I'm glad he's walking around with his kid. He's probably a really good dad. Maybe he's just not thinking about it. I don't know. But what's he telling his kid with that stupid T-shirt? What's he telling him? He's telling him whether he wants to tell him or not. Let me tell you about the significance of women. It has to do with their silhouette. And if that's their significance, then we know what we're supposed to do with them, right? How do you think abortions get started? We have got to... And we have not valued God or valued what he makes. And so we have become, haven't we, a nation of blood. Hard application. Now we need some hope. You ready for some hope? Good hope. Okay. David seems to love the idea that God sees him and knows him and is with him. He loves it, that a holy God is with him. Some of you, me sometimes when I read this, I'm like, eh. how can you read this and have the deep knowledge and presence of God move from terror to delight? Because there's an obvious wall here, right? If God is holy and he knows me so well and I have sinned against him in my thoughts, my motives, my words, and my deeds... I'm in trouble. I'm worthy of his judgment. Listen, David knew all about this. If you don't know better, let me, let me affirm to you that David was not like, well, what happens? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. What do you think of when you hear these great titles of the men of old? Those are God's people, right? Well, they, they are God's people, but they must have lived Amazing lives of morality, truth, and justice in the American way. Kidding. If you read the stories of them, they actually didn't. And one of the sins on David's resume is stealing his good friend's wife, getting her pregnant, and then killing off the friend. I want to emphasize that because I know abortion has and or will touch so many of us and we can think well it's unforgivable um, we can think there's, there's no way past this and I want you to know that even the man who wrote this he's killed somebody but he feels safe in the knowledge and the presence of God Verse 9 and 10, he said, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand shall hold me. So he has this knowledge, doesn't he, that even though I've sinned bad, I'm still loved by the God who knows me and who's with me. Doesn't he have that knowledge? How can we have that knowledge? The answer is not here in Psalm 139. But we can have the knowledge. We know the fulfillment of everything David was hoping for. Jesus said this in John ten fourteen, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. So the first thing Jesus says is, I know the Father. So let that blow your mind. Because you and I, do, do you know God? For me, I'm like, we've met. <laughs> but do you know 
God. Part of who he is being infinite is, infinite is that he's unknowable. Not that you can't know him some, or in a real way, we do. But you can't know him comprehensively. He's God. Jesus is like, I do. I know him. One with the Father. Just as he knows me, I know him. Jesus is God. But he says, I know the Father. And he also says, I know my own. I know my own. And what does he do for the ones that he knows in verse 15? I lay my life down for the sheep. Jesus laid his life down for you, knowing you, knowing you. When he died on the cross, he knew everything he was dying for. All your sins, all your shames, all your failures, all the mess, he knew it, he knew everyone, and he paid for everyone with perfection. He gave his life for you. Every need you have, he knows it. He died for it. He rose for it. He gave himself for you. And wearing the coat of Christ, the perfection that Jesus gives us through his life, death, and resurrection, to me, that changes the perfect knowledge and all presence and creative intimacy of God from a possible terror of, oh my gosh, the Holy One's after me, into... I am so safe in Jesus Christ that God now calls himself my Father who loves me. And so his knowledge of me is delightful because he knows me in Christ. And he just loves me. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So he know, if you're in Christ, if you trust in Christ, if you put your faith in him to save you, to remake you, God the Father, he knows you and he knows you with joy and pleasure. You're his kid, he loves you. you know, remember the story in, in uh, Genesis, Adam and Eve, they get married and they were naked and not ashamed. What a picture of intimacy. It's not just physical, it's emotional, it's life. It, you, you know me and I don't have to worry about it. You know, if I was naked right now, ha, I don't want you to see, okay? That'd be embarrassing for all of us, okay? When you're married, it's a little different. That's the idea of this, this intimate acceptance. And, and there's a huge picture here for our life as sinners is that we're ashamed. And we have to hide. We have to have distance. We can't trust. And in Christ before God, you are so deeply known. And you don't need to be ashamed at all because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And Paul even says this in Ephesians 5. I'm talking about Christ in the church. Jesus knows you and he loves you. It's a delight to be known this way by God. It's changing the way I pray. Do you ever try to pray and on the inside of your heart you're like, I do not feel like praying? Or you're anxious or you're mad or you're bitter and you're just like, oh, forget it. I'm learning to pray better and just be like, here's all the things that you know about me right now that I'm struggling with. I don't feel like praying. I don't even want to talk to you right now. I don't even want to do anything religious. I want to watch television or whatever. It helps to pray like that. And guess what? According to Psalm 139, God's not like, oh, you feel that way? Knew it. Still love you. Let yourself be known by God and loved by God. And when it doesn't make sense to you again, look at Jesus. He made you right. God's with you. Jesus said to his disciples, end of Matthew 28, I'll be with you, even to the end of the age. With you. With you. And this is even past God's omnipresence. This is a covenantal presence. I'm with you to support you, to protect you, to hold you. You're mine. Don't you love knowing in this crazy, awful, messed up world, the God who loves you is always with you? Even though I walk, right, through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil. Why? You're with me. 
He's with you. He loves you in Christ. He made you. He put you together in your mother's womb, and now in Christ, he's remaking you to be more like Jesus. Remaking you. So we can pray. Shouldn't we pray this prayer in Christ? God, search me. Know me. Test me. Lead me. There's not an ounce of condemnation in here. There's just him showing us our blind spots so that we can apply the gospel and be more like Jesus. Know his forgiveness, especially on today. Do you know Jesus' forgiveness? The cross is enough. I don't care what you're a part of. The cross is enough. Somebody else has taken that blame. Somebody else has taken that shame. Somebody else has taken that condemnation. Let him have it. The cross is enough. You're forgiven. Forgive others. Take that grace you've received. Apply it to others. Forgive others. Friends, in Christ we have the ultimate significance, don't we? In Christ we have the ultimate significance. Known by God. Enjoying the presence of God. Made by God. All in the clothes of Jesus Christ. Adopted as his children. So what do we take from here? Value God's significance. As the all-knowing, all-present, all-creating, all-holy one. Value that. It's precious to know this. Value what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. He makes you fit for his presence. You're delightful in his eyes. And then because we can see his value and know his value that he's given to us, what can we stand for? The value and the significance of others. Every man, every woman, every child, every unborn child. Let's pray. Father, it's almost hard to believe that you would care so much about us. We have this idea that you're so big and distant, far away. Your intimate knowledge of us and our lives is overwhelming. I just pray for every heart in here. You know our needs right now as we come before these ideas. Um, I pray that we would have a view of your knowledge of us and we would be amazed like David. We'd be in awe. It'd be wonderful. I pray we know the safety we have through trusting our lives to Jesus, that his life was enough to make us right, his death was enough to take away our sin, his resurrection is enough to earn our adoption, our victory. And I pray that as we just again are renewed in our valuing of how great and awesome you are, being washed by the value you've put on us, your love for us, your knowledge of us, Lord, that we would apply that into the world around us, that we would value the people you have made. We wouldn't listen to all the lies on what makes people valuable, like how they look or how smart they are or how big they are or where they live or how developed they are or any other thing, but we would know you've knit us together and it's wonderful. Help us stand for the value of those you've made in the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.